Hey, y'all. Welcome to Marty Smith's America. I almost said four, please. Now, driving the official Masters podcast. That is still in my mind, Travis. Uh, we have a killer show today, this week, for you guys. I get the opportunity to spend 45 minutes or something with a friend of mine for basically a quarter century. Dave Alpern is the president of Joe Gibbs Racing here in the lake area in Charlotte, North Carolina. They are one of the standards by which success in the sport is measured with Hall of Fame drivers like Bobby Labonte and Dale Jarrett that helped build it into a championship-level juggernaut. Of course, Joe Gibbs himself is a NASCAR Hall of Famer and a Pro Football Hall of Famer for his three Super Bowl championships with the Washington football team at the time known, of course, as the Washington Redskins. And Pern has been a friend of mine. Dave has been a friend of mine forever. Um, His best friend was J.D. Gibbs, Joe's son, whom we lost a couple of years ago to a very rare and kind of difficult to define neurological condition. And we walked through that during this interview. We walked through what it's like to watch your best friend ascend to the president of a juggernaut championship-level racing organization with a brilliant mind and a brilliant spirit and a vibrant soul and a smile that would light up any darkness. And then watch him walk through that neurodegenerative issue and, and, and how that impacts you. And suddenly that Hall of Famer Joe Gibbs calls you and says, hey, you're now the president of my racing team. Um, and the, what, the reason that I, I had this conversation with Pern is not only because he's someone who's inspired me for so long, he has a new book coming out June 8th, and we kind of walk through uh, why he wrote that book. Like, I am, of course, an author. All of you guys know that, but what inspired Pern to write his new book, Taking the Lead, and all the leadership principles that he's learned throughout his time with Joe Gibbs Racing and growing up with Joe Gibbs as one of your mentors and a father figure, and something I learned in this podcast about Perm's father. I didn't know that he had the job that he had. I just learned that today, and that will fascinate you guys. So what an amazing conversation with someone whom I've admired for so long. Y'all are going to love this, especially if you're one of the listeners who is into leader, leadership principles and how to use the platform the good Lord gives you on a much broader scale. Y'all know how I roll. ESPN is not my purpose. ESPN is a platform for my purpose. Kindness, effort, and passion are my purpose. And trying to use this amazing platform that the Lord has given me and that ESPN has given me to impact people on a much broader plane than sports. And that's what this conversation is with Dave Alpern, my buddy Pern, again, the president at Joe Gibbs Racing. Now, one aspect of Pern's job that I imagine is not easy is hiring people. He should get ZipRecruiter. How about that, Travis? You proud of that transition? Pretty good, right? That was smooth. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm proud of myself. That kind of came out of nowhere. I heard Dale Jr. on his podcast. I listen to Dale Jr.'s podcast every week, the Dale Jr. Download, and they he re- does that exact same read that I just did for ZipRecruiter. 
And they were talking about, imagine being the person that came up with needle in the haystack. Like who came up with that saying? Whoever that is, man, they had a good one because it has had great longevity. Like how long have people been saying that? I'm going to have to get to the bottom of that. That's a good one. I don't it's know. It's a really good one. Like, like how the needle... How did the needle get in the haystack? In why the were they using a needle? Why was haystack? there a needle anywhere near a haystack? Like, I don't understand it. I'll research it. Yeah. We got to get to the bottom of that one. And that, uh, that's Dale Jr. for you. Like, he, his randomness inspires me that it's okay to be random like that. How are Junior's reads? I assume he's probably pretty good just because he's, his life was all about sponsors. Well, the, the reason is for ZipRecruiter. Like, dude... Dude, the first time that I heard him read for ZipRecruiter, I couldn't – I bet I laughed for five straight minutes and I couldn't stop because he could not say – if you notice when I say ZipRecruiter, I basically pare it down into two different words because of Junior. Because when Junior first started doing ZipRecruiter reads, he was going ZipRecruiter. And it sounded like ZipRecruiter, ZipRecruiter. Because in the country – that's how we say like that's how we say it in the country. It's like ZipRecruiter. But it's ZipRecruiter which in the country we have to break it into two words. And now if you listen to Junior do it, he does the same thing. It's ZipRecruiter, not ZipRecruiter. So a bunch anyway. of idiots. Dude, Junior's reads are classic. I tell him and Mike Davis, his co-host and business manager, I tell them that every week. Because they'll be like reading for Scott's Turf Builder or they'll be reading for whatever it is. They have a thousand sponsors on that show. Valvoline, all these different sponsors, right? And they turn it into a, a discussion. And I think it's better for the sponsor that way. That's my opinion. Because it keeps you – you don't hit the 15-second button. 15, 15, 15, 15. You actually listen because it's funny as hell. Agree. It is. So anyway, y'all go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. Maybe you'll find that candidate to oversee your lawn this fall. While you're at it, make sure you listen to Scott Van Pelt's podcast, the SV Pod. Download and subscribe to SV Pod and Marty Smith's America wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now it's time to get to my conversation with Dave Alpern, my buddy who's the president at Joe Gibbs Racing. And just the business principle perspective that he offers, you hear him dur during this conversation kind of drop in these little nuggets from people like Fred Smith at FedEx, people like the Mars family at M&M's, all of these Fortune 500, Fortune 50, big-time corporations that invest in Joe Gibbs Racing, with whom Pern is in meetings every week. So it's just fascinating to me to hear his expertise coupled with the grace and the understanding and the vulnerability that is Dave Alpern. Y'all are going to love this conversation. Hit Travis and me up. Subscribe, rate, review to Marty Smith's America. It matters. And uh, I want to say one more time, this is a very random thing for me to say, Travis, but I just thought of it. I am so grateful that y'all made us 11th on that list of best sports podcasts for Barrett Sports Media, like two months ago or whatever it was. That came up to me randomly a couple days ago. Somebody mentioned that I was on that list. As the little engine that that can, the little, little engine that is, we're really proud of that. So that's we appreciate you guys. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Dave Alpern, the president 
of Joe Gibbs Racing. So as I stated, I have known this man for at least 20 years, probably more, probably closer to 25. It is Dave Alpern, the president at Joe Gibbs Racing here in Charlotte, just a few miles from where I'm sitting at my house at the lake. And we've been friends for a very long time. We have been confidants and sounding boards for a very long time. And Dave has uh, written his first book, and it's one that all of you guys should check out when you have the opportunity. It's called Taking the Lead, and it's a really unique inside look at what it's like to walk arm in arm with a Pro Football Hall of Famer in Joe Gibbs and a NASCAR Hall of Famer in Joe Gibbs for all these years. And I, I just kind of want to walk through the entire timeline, Pern. First, uh, let's just start with the book. W what inspired you to take on authorship? First of all, Marty, hey man, it's great to, it's great to be with you today. I appreciate the kind words. And uh, when you said Pern's written his first book, I almost added, and last, I think I may be a one and dunner. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, no, actually, so 10 years ago, my dad started writing a book and my dad was kind of a rock star. He was, uh, he was actually a CIA operative. I was born in a foreign country. So was one of my sisters. He spoke multiple languages. He briefed presidents of the United States. And my dad was going to write a book, which we were all excited about. And he, he had just started and he got, he got cancer. And so I, I begged my dad, you know, let me, let me record your stories in case you can't finish this. And, you know, ever the optimist, ah, I'm good. I got this. And he didn't. And my dad passed away. And, you know, he got through about three chapters and kind of, you know, our whole family was deprived of his story. And it was it was then when my dad died about a decade ago that I told my wife, you know what, my, my story may not be as interesting as my dad's, but I want to write a book so that my kids and future generations kind of hear the story of kind of God's faithfulness to me and this company that I work for. And, and, and I hope it, you know, I hope it encourages some people. And, um, few years later. And so I actually made a note, a note uh, file on my phone called book. And whenever I'd be on a plane or, you know, maybe driving in the car, I'd do a voice memo. I'd think of a principle, you know, uh, be a fountain, not a drain or deliver more value than you, than you're paid or whatever it was. And I, I started making files and about three years ago, I started, you know, getting serious about it and got a publisher. And of course, during that time, JD got sick and, and I became the president and the the later chapters of the book started coming to life, you know, versus when I thought about it 10 years ago. So all that to say, it was a really long process for me. And, and really over the last two or so years, I, I, I started going through the process. And again, I don't really have a great personality for writing a book. So it was uh, an arduous process to say the least. And, and honestly, I will say, I, uh, I, I admire you a great deal and people who write, you know, not only is your book phenomenally written, but when you when you write a piece right after a an event or something, I don't work that way. It takes me a long time to articulate my thoughts. And the thought that you wake up the next morning and you you read an article that you've written for something that just happened, I'm like, how does he do that? So, <laughs> props to you. I do not have a brain that works that way. So, but uh, that's a long answer. But that's how I that's how I came to write a book, um, and uh, pretty pretty excited about it, but not sure there'll be another one. So <laughs> I there's, hope this one's good. <laughs> and there's so many unique 
pieces to the book. And, and I want to get into a couple of those for, for those of you who know a lot about me or have read my, my book, you know, my son Cameron has Tourette syndrome and Dave also has Tourette syndrome. He's been a tremendous resource for my family and kind of helping Cameron understand himself a little bit better. But one of the most difficult parts of writing my book, and it's funny that you say that you just wanted to leave behind so that people in future generations could kind of understand your walk. That was my exact motivation in writing mine too. And what's, what was a little scary was the vulnerability involved in it. Anything worth its salt is vulnerable. And if you're willing to put that energy out into the universe, you have to be okay with whatever energy comes back to you because it's authentic and genuine. For sure. So what, what was the challenge for you to, I mean, walking through the emotions of losing your dad, walking through the emotions of losing your best friend since you were five years old, all of those things are so vulnerable. And and honestly, I I would say one of the, when people ask me what makes a great leader, I think vulnerability is one of them. I mean, character, authenticity, but I I think the idea is I didn't want to write a book that discouraged anyone. I wanted it to be the opposite. And the way you encourage people is by sharing with them. Like, so the, the, the great thing about my book is I'm, <laughs> I am the average Joe. I am not the best at anything. And that's not a shtick. That's the truth. And so the idea that, you know, this regular guy that, you know, first, you know, smallest guy in his high school, late bloomer, you know, it was, it was kind of this underdog thing that gets the opportunity to do what I do. Uh, when I talk to students and things, it's often an encouragement to them because I really am the average Joe. I'm just a regular guy. And like you mentioned, Tourette's, um, Honestly, the book is the first time I've ever talked about my Tourette's. You know, when I speak, I never talk about it. And it's not at all because I'm ashamed of it. I just, it just hasn't, it hasn't come up a lot. And actually, I mentioned in the book that my discussion, one of the first discussions we had about Cameron uh, with you really inspired me. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this. It, It inspired me to talk about it more. And I reached out to the sort of the national, uh, the Tourette's organization and, and, and said, hey, I want to I want to be a resource and um, got to know the person here, you know, met the person here locally and hoping to do more with them. But the, the, I think the thing is, everybody is dealing with something. You know, I, there, I, I talk about in my book, there's a chapter about dealing with conflict. We all have an internal internal conflict going on. There's plenty of external conflicts we deal with in our jobs every day, but in our lives, we're all dealing with conflict, whether it's, whether it's um, somebody again, calling you in the middle of your interview yeah, to discuss yeah, the fact that Danny finished that, second that, at that, Richmond. That's an, that's an alarm. Um, <laughs> no, whether it's a, whether it's a mental illness or whether it's a, um, a disability or what have you. And so my Tourette's for me has been kind of a thorn that I've dealt with my whole life, but it's, it's helped make me who I am. Um, and you know, the symptoms were the worst in high school and college which is not a great time for symptoms to be, you know, right. you're trying to make friends, you're trying to meet people. And uh, it was tough, but uh, it was um, therapeutic for me to talk about it in the book. And, and again, my hope is that there are, um, that there are folks who are encouraged by it, that, uh, that hear it and that, you know, that realize that, uh, Hey, it's okay to talk about them. And Hey, there's other people that are dealing with some of the same stuff that I'm dealing with. Yeah, it gave me so much encouragement as a dad and and Lainey as a mom that, okay, even though we're managing this, trying to help our our little boy manage this thing, that we don't have any any knowledge of whatsoever. 
but I have people and there's another guy who I'm not sure if Trent is still with Penske, but Trent Cherry, a guy who was a tire changer forever in the cup series and, and moved on to become a, a pit coach. He too had Tourette's has Tourette's. And so he's been a, a resource as well. But so I want to, I want to dive into that just a little bit, if you don't mind. And if you're not, absolutely just tell me, but far away. How, how was it a thorn in your side? What were your symptoms? How did that impact you socially as a young person and your self-confidence? So, yeah, I remember. So middle school. So here I am in middle school, which is tough enough as it is. Um, you, and for those of you who don't know Tourette, well, it, it's, it's a series of uh, ticks and it can be, it can be vocal uh, noises, sounds. It can be um, muscular where you just do different, um, again, different, it may be facial twix, twitches. I had some interesting ones uh, that I can laugh about now. One of my first ones was chewing on my lip. And I remember in middle school, I had chewed through my lip and had to go see an oral surgeon to get stitches. And I remember going in with my mom and the surgeon puts a device in there and he said, he stitches it up and he puts a device and he goes, now, you know, you need to stop chewing on this for the next couple of days or it's going to fall off. And I said, well, you don't understand yeah, <laughs> the right. reason I'm here is because I can't. And <clears throat> he said, well, there's no, and I remember, I'll never forget him telling me, he said, there's no condition that makes you chew on your lip. You just need to stop doing it. And I kind of looked at my mom and I said, can you explain to him? And she couldn't. And I just, it, it was this hopeless feeling of nobody under, they think I'm nuts, you know? Um, and my parents had gotten divorced recently and they thought maybe there was a psychological reaction I was having to that. And, and, and I didn't know what it was, you know, it was, it was several years before they put a name to it. So, you know, going up, I think you would have, um, it, it, Tourette, it, it, Tourette syndrome is an interesting thing. There's, there's, there's mimicking. So <clears throat> somebody would laugh or make a funny sound and you have this overwhelming urge to repeat it, to mimic it. And so sometimes it was a movement. And I, again, I have two and I'll, I'll say them, you, you'll appreciate uh, joking. I had one where I would literally kick my, kick my rear end. I would just be standing there, you know, try to do it. It's kind of a gift. I was actually pretty good at it. But um, <laughs> I, I remember playing baseball in seventh grade. And when I would go up to bat, my nickname was Rooster because I looked like a rooster because I was kicking my rear end and they go, get it, get a hit Rooster. And I, I learned to I just learned to laugh about it. You know what I mean? Because I honestly, kids were, I, I at least had the position that they were kind of laughing with me and they weren't making fun of me. So it really didn't bother me as much as it could have. I had another one where, and again, you, you kind of listen to this and you go, that is bizarre. I would twirl. So I would spin and the sensation that it gave my, my, you know, sort of that dizzy sensation was the, was what the tick needed to do. So I'd be walking down the hall and I'd kind of look around and go, all right, I got to make this as inconspicuous as possible. I got a twist. I got a twirl. I got a twirl. And so you're in seventh and eighth grade and you're trying to make friends and stuff. And so it was, it honestly, it, it, uh, it developed a sense of humor. It kind of gave me a, um, you know, I think it, it actually helped my social skills. Cause I always felt like I had to compensate for, Hey, why are you, why are you doing that? And I, you know, I had stock answers. Hey, it's just a nervous habit or whatever. And honestly, Kids weren't as ruthless as, as you know, I, there's probably movies who depict things worse than they really are. There were, there were some, there were some cruel kids, but, you know, going into high school, um, I just learned to compensate for it. But I would say most of it was internal. It was the quiet moments. I hated quiet. I hated, so the faster things were moving and the more sound there was, the more it distracted me. And so trying to go to sleep, trying to sit down and do homework. Um, was the hardest. And that's, again, that's, that's tough when you're, you're in a position where particularly in college, you got to start studying. And I just, you know, you would, 
I'd start sweating, trying to, all right, I got to calm down. I got to And, and part of Tourette's is you get a little OCD, you get a so there's other, there's other things you're dealing with, you know, you know, making the papers just perfect on your desk when you're trying to study and, and then you keep twitching and you keep moving them. And you know, just, again, little things like that. But it was like every part of my being was affected by, by Tourette's. And, you know, when you're young, you think I'm the only one in the world that's dealing with everything. Everyone else has got it together. Well, little did I know everyone's got something they're going home at night dealing with. And I so appreciate that now as a, as a parent um, and just the sensitivity that, you know, when you, and, and I, I talk, um, I talk about treating people like a soul and not a transaction. And, and, and I think that's a great lesson in life. Every person you meet is dealing with something and, and they're not just a transaction and you're, you know, a cog in your wheel to get to your next thing. Treat each person that you interact with like a soul. Cause they are, they are dealing with something inside They're They're valuable. And, you know, there were people who did that with me when I, when I was dealing with that, that I'll never forget that really changed the way that I, I view life. It's just beautiful. That's so true, man. And one of those people is JD Gibbs. So absolutely. Yeah. Some of you guys listen may not have ever heard of JD Gibbs. JD is one of Joe Gibbs, two sons and uh, was a, a vibrant is not a strong enough word. Kind is not a strong enough word. Uh, he was a one of a kind and a brilliant Absolutely. man and, and just a, an open soul. He treated everybody the way that Pern is discussing right now. And uh, he had the most unique neurological disorder <laughs> a few years back that kind of came out of nowhere, it seemed, and, and ultimately took JD from us. And Dave, what, what was that experience like? How did JD enter your life as a young person and walk us through your friendship? Well, thanks for the kind words about my buddy, JD. Um, I know you knew him well and he, you were a dear friend. Um, I met JD in seventh grade, <laughs> believe it or not. In fact, funny story. I, I had the privilege of, of delivering a eulogy at, at, at JD's service and which by the way, um, you talk about a life well-lived. You listen to what folks said about JD. But um, one of the stories I shared is JD spent the night at my house, his dad's first year as the coach of the Redskins, and they had gone 0-5. And I basically said, hey, this is going to be the last time you're spending the night at my house because I think your dad's getting ready, <laughs> ready to get kicked out of town. Uh, <laughs> you know, tell him, good job, Lombardi, you know, 0-5. But uh, so me and JD became friends early on and, and, and just – the picture that I want you to hear of JD in high school that sums up who he was as a person. So imagine this quarterback of the football team as a sophomore, the varsity team, dad's the coach of the skins, great looking, you know, just most popular guy at school, but JD would walk into the cafeteria on most days and sit at a table of less popular kids and just plop down. And as if they didn't know, he'd say, Hey, I'm JD. What's your name? And he didn't do it to have people notice him. He did it because he recognized early the power of influence and he, and he taught me the power of influence and he knew how to use it and, and, and was wise beyond his years for a, for a high school guy. So fast forward, we go, we become friends and we, we go into this business together and start this race team and we don't know what the heck we're doing. And um, I, I had JD and another guy, Todd, I had two dear friends working with me for two decades. I was blessed beyond belief. I got to work with, I got to see JD every day. Um, 
you know, uh, you know, live out what we're talking about. And um, so I think it was the summer of 04. It's kind of when all this started. Something seemed to be different with him. Uh, JD was not his normal self. That and, far and back. Best, yeah, I can best describe it as he was distracted. We, we act, so we act, Todd and I actually had a intervention with him where we took him to lunch and said, listen, I think you need to take a sabbatical. We thought he was just burnt out because you, you would go into his office and he, he would not pay attention and he'd kind of stare at his phone. And the next day he'd ask you a question that implied he wasn't listening to you the day before. And it was just, it was just different. He, he seemed off. And uh, <clears throat> actually when we did the press conference to announce Carl Edwards coming to JGR is when it kind of all is kind of when it all hit, he was up front and he was awful. And, you know, JD was normally, um, you know, you put him up front and he's got that sunniest smile and he's, yep. he's, you know, that's J and, and he wasn't JD and he was off. And I had people text me and say, Hey, what, what's up with JD is, you know, is there something going on with him? And shortly thereafter, he, he actually went to the Mayo clinic. I actually called his wife that night. She said, I know why you're calling. People have been asking me. And they went to the Mayo clinic again, yeah, just discovered he had a sort of a, a degenerative, uh, neurological issue and it was yeah marty the best way i can describe it it was just it was cruel it was awful it it was um you know upwards of five years of just you know watching literally one of the greatest humans that i'd ever known you know deteriorate and and it was um it was one of those things that just it didn't make sense every every stage and we didn't know what was next and so he would he came into the office for many years and you know that was both wonderful and hard at the same time. Cause I, I saw him every day and, and each time you would think this stage, it can't get any worse. It would just get worse. And, and, you know, and, and just each stage of it was, 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 was really tough. And then we lost him in, in, uh, you know, two Januaries ago and uh, no, it's been really tough. And, and the, the, you know, the crazy part of it was I um, went, you know, early into his illness coach um, named me the president. So, and, and, you know, on the day I talk about this in the book, you know, the day I became president was one of the worst days of my life because I, you know, everyone's texting to congratulate me. And all I'm thinking was JD's not getting better. I mean, that was like, that was like the official notice that this is real and JD's not getting better. And I didn't want my best friend's job. You know, that's supposed to be JD's job. This is a family business and I'm not named Gibbs. And so as, as grateful as I was and am for the opportunity it was sort of that official stamp that this is not going to, this is not going away. And, and, and uh, it's been tough. And again, I mean, it's been, uh, it's been six years since I've been the president and it, um, you know, again, so grateful for it, but I still walk by JD's office every day and, and, and it's, it's, it's surreal, you know, and, and uh, again, grateful for, I'm, I'm a different person because of him. We're a different company because of him and his fingerprints are everywhere. But uh, it, it was it was a really, really tough process, really tough process. To, to, to Pern's point, guys, J.D. was just a beautiful man, uh, uber fit, thousand watt That's smile. That's for sure. <laughs> so full of it. I mean, he was a ball buster of colossal proportions, but the sweetest person and the most beautiful husband and dad and family man. And that was one of the reasons why his disease was so shocking to all of us mm -hmm. because of the stark contrast yeah. from what we knew versus what we had to learn. And 
and I miss him. I miss his like direction. He was one of those guys that you could call if you didn't know something. It, it, I'm not even talking about race cars. I'm talking about life. And he always had an answer. He always was like, yeah, let me, I'll walk you through this. And he was my compass, man, in many yeah. ways. Yeah. When you do take that big chair, what comes with that that you can't prepare for? Gosh, yeah, Marty, there's so many things. I actually, I have told my wife many times before I was the president, I can't imagine what it's like to go to bed at night knowing there's 500 families counting on you. You know, I can't imagine the pressure that JD has. And so that's an example of one of the things that you feel afterwards is that these decisions that we're making, and it's funny, sometimes what I want to tell fans, you know, fans will call into a show because you make a show and they're like, you know, you're an idiot or whatever. And that's what, look, I'm a, I'm a sports fan too. And I love that. And what I want to communicate to them, if you knew that, look, when we make these decisions, this is our life. These, there are families. It's not just, it's not just the fans. It's the people who depend on us. We are trying to make good decisions because we have families that are depending on us. Again, it's not just the people who work here. It's their spouses, their kids, their friends, their, you know, they go home for Christmas and people talk about what we're doing here it's this huge responsibility. And so that's it. You want to be smart. And then beyond that, it's all the partners that count on you. It's FedEx, it's Toyota, it's Mar you know, you go down the list, you want to, you want to do well for them. You care about them. So you feel this weight, you know, the stakes of what we're doing, um, you know, as you know, I mean, they just ramp up every year. There's more at stake. It seems bigger. It's it, um, as we grew into a four car team, there's just, I used to joke in the early days, there was a crisis every week or two, now there's one every hour, you know, it's just nonstop. <laughs> and so you feel, you feel that it used to be, I could go home and I would give JD my advice and I'd kind of, you know, wipe my hands and go, you hang Kevin, I, I ain't got to do that. And so now, you know, coach is calling me and, and it's a lot, but um, again, all that to say, you know, I had the best mentor to prepare for this you could have. And uh, you know, JD never took himself too seriously. And honestly, the one, the, the thing I so appreciate, and also miss about JD was he had this unique way of finding work-life balance in a crazy job. JD, like you said before, was a tremendous dad. Um, he kept himself fit. He would leave, he would leave. We'd be having a meeting and there's bullets flying and we're yelling at each other. JD would get up and I'd go, where are you going? And he'd go, I got a coach, I got practice. And I'm like, huh? And he'd go, hey, this problem, this will still be here in two hours. I'm going to go do, I'm going to, and he'd leave that. and I I'd go, it. you know, how can you leave? And, and that's, that, that was kind of a model for me. And we kind of covered for each other with that. Um, and so we'd coach together and, but JD, JD got it. He knew how to invest in what mattered most. He took worse work very seriously, but he took his faith and his family more seriously. And that there was a lot of people who say that it's kind of a cliche thing. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's God family work. JD lived it. I mean, literally lived it out. And so that is sort of my, honestly, my calling here is to continue that element of our culture is in a, in a fast paced performance, win, win, win world. How do I look out for the souls of the people that are working here? Meaning you are, you know, you're a person you have, you need to, you need to pursue things that give you life and we need to try to give you the balance to do that amidst this crazy culture. And I, I let me say this. I don't pretend to have a magic formula because it is hard. It is hard because what we're doing is hard. But but I have that burden because I know J.D. did. J.D. cared about me. J.D.'s first question was always, how are you doing? How's your family doing? It wasn't, 
it wasn't some performance-based thing. It was a personal-based thing. And that's the difference of treating someone like a soul versus a transaction. Every business, again, some of the people listening are sports people. They may not be racers. For, for those of you guys who may not understand the business model in NASCAR, Pern was talking about their partners. All right. Yeah. NASCAR is not a franchised business. There, it's not like the NBA or the NFL where there's a certain number of these, these teams and it's a franchise where that's all there is. In NASCAR, they've tried to manufacture something of a franchise model. It ain't a franchise model. So what, it, what that means is every one of those partners, and in Dave's case, in, in Pern's case, it is Eminem Mars. It is FedEx. It is, I mean, I don't even, I, I don't even know. Y'all got like 30 big time <laughs> partners. Y'all are good at it. Y'all, y'all are good at Y'all are good at it. But that's what makes the wheel turn, guys. It is corporate funding and the belief in the, the belief in the relevance of the, of the race team and, and activating the drivers in the marketplace that, that pushes these corporate sponsors to back financially teams like Joe Gibbs Racing. And the amount of pressure to run well is overwhelming. And we lose sight of that yeah. a lot unless you're in your seat or <laughs> Coach Gibbs' seat or Rick Hendricks' seat or Richard yep. Childress's seat. How vital all that is. Yeah, no, Marty, I'm glad you mentioned that. So one of my favorite things is I speak to colleges, to business schools, and I talk about the business of NASCAR. You know, one of the things I talk about is exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, roughly 75, 80% of our revenue comes from corporate sponsors. And so the way I describe what you're talking about is we have to hunt for just about everything we eat. And, and, and it's a, it's a constant, it's a constant, you know, process. It's relationships. Joe says that all the time. This isn't business. It's relationships. It's building relationships with these companies. But one of the unique things about our sport is, you know, because such a large part of our revenue comes from sponsors, it's great if you're a sponsor because guess where 75 or 80% of our attention is? It's on them and right. making sure we are delivering. And so um, the, the impression I always share with students that separates a NASCAR sponsorship from most others is this idea that in our sport, the sponsor actually is the team. What I mean by that is Denny Hamlin drives the FedEx Camry. FedEx is in other sports. There's never going to be a team called the Denver FedExes. But in our sport, <laughs> they are the actual identity of the team. And it's a big deal for the partners. And, and so, again, whether it's FedEx or Mars or Stanley Black & Decker or Bass Pro, Toyota, you know, they all have a measuring tool. And the great thing is it's different for all of them. They're all using the same platform of NASCAR to achieve a different objective. It's our job to know what's that objective. And when it comes time for renewal, it is not just based on leading laps and winning, although, trust me, they all expect that. <laughs> it, it, it's so much more. And I think where we've been successful, and I talk about this, you know, it's important for a company to always stay on mission. What is that one question? And for us, it's simple. For 30 years, there's one question, and that is, will this make us go faster? We have been relentless in our pursuit of not making any decisions without asking that question. Will this make us go faster? Because coach's philosophy is, if we lead the most laps and we win the most races, everything else will take care of itself. Focus only on that. Don't focus on, you know, don't get distracted. What is our mission? In fact, we, we have a 
we have a joke for 10 years. You, you, you probably came here many times before we had a sign. We didn't have a sign out front of our building. And that sign yeah. was because the, the business park wanted 15 grand for a sign. And every year when we'd have our capital budget meeting, the sign would come up and we'd go, that ain't making us go fast. Let's put it somewhere <laughs> else. And that became a symbol for our mantra. Does this make us go fast? And so all that to say, we, we like to think that we attract blue chip sponsors because generally big brands want to do big things and we want to lead laps and win races. And we hope the rest of it's going to take care of itself, but it is a, the pursuit of doing that, Marty, like you said, it is, it is nonstop. Um, you know, where you, you got to have great drivers, you got to have, you know, great folks, it's people. Um, and so it's this never ending machine that when you had 20 people, was a lot easier than when you have 500 and, and, you know, you're trying to, and, and by the way, when you have four teams racing against them yourself, uh, it, it's not everyone can win every week. So yeah, it's kind of like gonna... your kids all competing in something. Someone loses every week and someone's hacked off. There's always someone mad at the end of every race, even when you finish first, second, third, fourth. That's one thing <laughs> I was going to ask you about because it fascinates me as leaders. And I imagine coach Gibbs probably, manages any any butt kicking that needs to happen but <laughs> when you have uber competitive uber talented guys like you guys do with with kb and yep. and with denny and martin and all those all those guys and christopher's going to be a star too yep. how do you manage the personalities how do you manage the real time emotion that comes with failure in a sport where failure is second. It's uh, well, I will say this coach is brilliant at it uh, from I football. Know he is. Has and to and be. so I, I, listen, I think, I think, again, it goes back to the culture. You know, we, I'll, I'll give you an example. So in, in 2019, we won 19 races, set the NASCAR record. And I think there were four races where we finished first, second, third, it had never happened before. And we did it four times. There was one Monday I came in for our competition meeting. We had finished first, second, and third. And I didn't expect cake and balloons or anything, but I figured people would be in a good mood. And we go in there, and, I mean, coaches ripping. The, they, those pit stops were terrible. The crew chiefs are kind of back and forth. And I'm 10 minutes into it looking around going, did I watch the same race? We were first, second, and third. What is – what? And, and the point is, it is – it's, it's it, the culture here – it's competitive and it's, it's like buddies playing golf together. You know, the best way to play good is to have your buddy play good. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm going to beat him. And so you got these uber competitive guys and it, I think coach feeds that. And, and, and what's great about a multiple car team is if, a, if, if one of our elite drivers has a bad run, well, if you were a one car team, it, it, it's hard to know, well, what do our cars think? Did he have an off week? But when you look across the table and the other guys finished first and second, all, you're like, all right, well, we got to get our stuff together. And it, it pushes, they push each other. And, and coach knows how to push the buttons to do that and, and to make them work together. And listen, I will contend. Um, one of the ways that was brilliant was back when we went from one car to two car, when we added Tony Stewart, the philosophy was Joe said, we are not going to have an A team and a B team. We are going to have two A teams and they are going to be all in together. And the way he did it was he went to Bobby Labonte and Jimmy Makar, who are our driver and crew chief then. And he said, you pick the driver. You pick the crew chief. Because I don't want to hear that you can't work with them. You're going to pick them. We all got in a room and we, we said, let's go recruit Tony Stewart. And by the way, I talk about that in my book, me and JD and Joe recruiting Tony, which was a whole another adventure in and of itself. But, but the, the point was, 
they all bought in. They all came in together. They picked each other. Then when we went to a third car, it was the same philosophy. And Joe is very smart about team building and getting everyone to buy into this idea that we are two cars, one team. Then it was three cars, one team. And now it is four cars, one team. Now, make no mistake. And again, if you're a novice to NASCAR and you're thinking, gosh, that's odd. They Do they, do they help each other win? They do not try. Anyone, Marty will tell you, Kyle Busch would wouldn't let his mother win a race he against him. I mean, mom. these guys, yep. these guys, these guys want to win, but they can make each other better. Mark, listen, Martin Truex Jr. struggled at short tracks for his whole career. Hadn't won a short track race. He's been at JGR for two and a half seasons. He's been to Martinsville five times. He's won three of them. I believe that Denny and Kyle have made him better there. I think he's made the other guys better. And so Joe has created an atmosphere where those guys genuinely want to make each other better. Now, again, come the end of the race, every man for himself, don't wreck your teammate that when they're near each other, we, we have heart attacks, but you know, so it, but that's a long answer to, it is definitely difficult. Um, But Joe knows how to manage, you know, big personalities, big egos. He, he loves those guys. The, The bigger the personality, the more I think they thrive in coaches environment um, because Joe really knows how to manage those guys. He's, I mean, everybody knows who he is. I mean, if you got, if you got oxygen in your lungs, you know who Joe Gibbs is, but, but he's still kind of mythical. I've known him for 20, I've known him as long as I've known him, you know, I moved to Charlotte in 98 or whatever, and I've known him since, but he's still a little bit mythical to me. What, what, like what, give, what, what does he do that is so special that he just wins where, whatever he touches? Yeah. I, I have a description around here and this is, this is, so coach has a sense of urgency, like no one I've ever met. And is that the secret sauce? It's one of many. And the way I describe it is he treats every meeting, every issue, like the last plane out of Vietnam, everything, mm-hmm. everything. And, and it, it is this relentless urgency that literally, I mean, it's 30 years, it's never stopped. Um, I'll illustrate that. Yeah. You know, one time, 11 o'clock at night, Joe's, Joe's numbers blocked. So, Whenever you're, whenever it says no caller ID, you're like, this is coach. So 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. 11 o'clock at night, no caller ID. I answer. And and let me say this dinner time late at night, his conversations never start with, Hey Dave, is this a good time? It's always goes right into it. So it's, Hey Pern. And he goes, so he's, he had, he was meeting with someone. He had flown somewhere. I think he was in Florida and he said, Hey, we got this issue. It's, it's with a contract. He said, I want you to get the guys together and be there when I land. So I kind of pause and I'm doing the math and I'm like, so he's implying, let's go to the shop at midnight to meet. And so I paused and I said, now is whatever is an issue going to still be an issue? Like say at seven in the morning tomorrow, could we just meet at seven? And he kind of paused, like he'd never considered that and went, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's meet at seven tomorrow morning. So if I hadn't <laughs> said anything, we're going to the shop at 12, 30, you know, and he is that way. And when we met about it the next morning, it was something we'd already met about several times. I mean, it was a big deal, but it wasn't, it was not a nine one one that, that required attention at that moment. But how does he, he treats, maintain that energy, it, it, man? He's, he is a machine. He is not a human. <laughs> it's uh, Marty. It's unbelievable. It's uncanny. And, but, but here's when people ask what separates us. And I, I truly believe this. We're the only team that doesn't have any other businesses. And I joke, we're the only ones dumb enough to have this be our only business. But our owner wakes up and goes to bed and spends every minute in between. This is all he thinks about. And again, 
he treats everything like I just told you, like it's it's the skins, cowboys, you know, rivalry, like everything is that is that with that urgency. And so that's what you're competing with is you're competing with someone who literally thinks about nothing else besides this company. And um, and, and, and again, all that to say, as intense as he is, he believes that this provide look, he believes we're all be called, we're called to be great at what we do. And that's why he's at two pro sports hall of fames. But at the same time, he believes that that is only a platform to do better things. And, and so I watch him weave his ministry into it and use this platform. But, but I think the philosophy is nobody really cares what you think if you don't ever win. So if you win, it gives you a platform to share what's really important to you. Um, so it's a balance that, 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 is very unique. Um, but again, I, I, I go back to, this is all we do. So it's not like we have a meeting where we say, hey, let's talk about this other company for an hour. It, it, all we're talking about is going fast, leading laps, winning races. How do you do that? How do you keep the partners happy? It's nonstop. I mean, it's Groundhog Day. It's every year. It's this is, you know, let me guess, Joe, this is the biggest meeting we've ever had because we've had about a thousand of those and they keep getting more, <laughs> every one of them, you know, it's like a locker room talk. That relentless pursuit. Yeah. Uh, I admire it so much with guys like coach and, and, and Nick yeah. Saban and Bill Belichick yep. and yep. those guys who are hall, you know, hall of famers, uh, yep. they just never let it, let it go. And it's funny. You're talking about how racing is a platform for him. I interviewed Brandon Marshall, the great former yeah. wide receiver who's doing yep. great things with his podcast. Now I am athlete. In fact, he's in Charlotte today. I think he's interviewing Kyle Bush today for that. Podcast, really? I think. Okay, I think great. So. Great. Um, anyway, Brandon told me a couple of years ago when I interviewed him for, for Marty Smith's America that he realized after uh, he has borderline personality disorder and he went to McLean hospital outside of Boston and got a lot of, insight into his own mind and realize the NFL is the platform for my purpose. It's not my purpose. And that's just so dynamic. When you get to that place emotionally, that think is about such that, a Marty, dynamic I mean, at place. The, at the end of Joe's life, at the end of my life, and again, this is going to sound cliche, but all the wins, all the championships, what, what good are they going to do? Right. The, the question is, what did we do with it? Did we use our resources to, 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 you know, and were we generous with it? Were we generous with our time? Did we, did we make the people who work for us better human beings? Did we, did we leave the community that we have our business in better than we left it? You know, there's things like that. Again, they sound cliche, but, but it's, but it's real. And again, JD service um, was an example of that. Not once did anyone talk about anything related to winning a race or it was, the impact that JD had had on their lives. And so what are we doing? And we're all gifted in different ways. Not everyone is gifted in the way coaches. I have different gifts. Everyone, you know, folks listening each have. So God wired you in a certain way. Um, I talk, I, I honestly, I talk a lot about being a compliment, not being a clone. Like when you're in a company, don't try to be something, be you, be compliment everyone else. Cause there's only one you. And so whatever it is that you bring to the table, how can you contribute? How are you, you know, how are you, um, you know, making, making the world around you better by using your gifts. And, and, and again, it's, it's cliche, but I, I do, I think you're exactly right. Brandon's exactly right. And that's, I think coach figured that out. JD definitely figured that out. And, and again, I'm trying to do my thing in my own way. And again, hopefully my, um, my contribution to, to JGR and my book are, 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 are a small way of doing that as well.
No question. I love that you did it. Uh, a couple more and I'll let you run. You got a race team to go run. Uh, but <laughs> how many, so, so throughout this conversation, you've discussed a couple of the principles that you really detail yeah. in depth in, in, in the text, in the book. How many avenues over your career kind of led you to pare down these principles that you discuss in the book? Is it, I, I, I certainly it's coach, certainly it's JD. It's all the time working within NASCAR. I imagine it's partnerships, yeah. corporate partnership. How many avenues is that? Well, no, I it's, you, you're exactly right. I mean, when the, my biggest takeaway from my job is what I learned from people. Again, it goes back to relationships and I, I have literally had, you know, I've had like a 30 degree master's degree um, in in business from the, from, I have a chapter called traits of the greats. And I I call it the Mount Rushmore of partners that I've learned from, you know, Toyota, Mars, FedEx, interstate batteries, and these, these C-level executives, these brilliant, wonderful human beings that I get, I mean, I'm in meetings and I'm just taking notes and I'm listening and I'm like, I want to learn from you. And so I've gotten a front row seat to learn from these these brilliant leaders. And, and I think that's, this is a product of that. It's not just working alongside a two sport hall of famer. Again, it's these other people, it's people within NASCAR. It's, it's track owners. You know, I've learned from drivers. I've learned uh, from other people in the industry. And so the beauty of, and and early in my career, I kind of figured out, I I learned that again, like I said before, not the smartest at everything, but I want to surround myself with people smarter than me in every meeting. I don't ever want to be the smartest person in the meeting, which by the way, is not super difficult, but, but that's, that to me is leadership is just saying, Hey, I'm not the smartest, but I want to put people around me who are really smart and I want to learn from them. And so um, again, whatever it was that I was doing, I think this is a product of that. I tried to encapsulate as much of that in the book, but like you said, I mean, it's hard to, (laughs) it's hard to pare down, you know, Mm -hmm what I've learned over, over, over all that time. But um, w- one thing that you will, I think you will find in this book is a lot of business books, leadership books are sort of written from the perspective of a, what I would call the, that, that type A alpha leader profile of I'm going to take charge and I'm going to rise to the top. I'm the opposite of that. And, and, and I'm more, mine is more a tone of reluctant leadership. And, and that is because I'm not super comfortable <laughs> in, in, in the role of being up front. You know, I was a great chief of staff, but all of a sudden when I was the guy that had the president's title, I'm not, not as comfortable with that. And I, I hope there's some people that relate to that too. And again, I think the, I think the alpha person, there's a lot to learn because I work for one of those, but, but, but for me, it's, it's dealing with that from the reluctant side of, you know, Hey, I'm not sure. Sometimes I need a actually oftentimes I need a kick in the butt to go, Hey, you, you go talk. Don't just, don't have Joe do it or someone you, you go talk. And I still think of myself as the unpaid intern in a broom closet where I started and why, why the heck they want to hear from me, you know, because that's still in my mind. I'm that, I'm that kid. I'm that kid that, you know, again, I came to work. They didn't have anywhere to put me. They stuck me in a broom closet with an elementary school desk and no electrical outlet. And so I had an extension cord and a lamp. And, and that what was did it. you do? That, what was your no, first role? No, no. So that's crazy. So I come to Joe Gibbs Racing and literally they had nowhere to put me. So I'm, I, when I say, and this is early 90s, so there's no internet. So I have no computer. I have a spiral notebook. I got a phone and who, who am I going to call? I got nobody to call. There's a phone cord. And so I'm like booking hotel rooms. And I, honestly, I tell students this, just think for a second. Think about booking a hotel room with no internet. You're calling 1-800-Hilton and going, hey, we're going to Dallas. Do you have any hotels? I mean, it, 
everything was archaic. It took forever. <laughs> so I was booking hotels. I was putting stickers on cars. I, I, you know, and I go back to, I, I mentioned my dad early on here. I'm my dad's only son. I have two sisters, but I'm thinking, boy, my dad must be so proud of me. I'm working in a garage for nothing <laughs> in a broom closet, putting stickers on cars. He's, he's saving the world. And, and I'm, I'm thinking what a failure. So you know, I, I still have a complex that I was, that I'm that guy. And, and, and again, I talk a lot, I'll mention, I talk a lot about, there's a whole section called delivering more than you cost. And if you want to always have job security, make yourself indispensable by just deliver more than you're paid. Now, when you're an unpaid intern, that's a really low bar, you know, but I would argue LeBron James delivers more than he's paid and he's paid a lot. So it, it's a matter of, you know, is these ideas of, um, you know, being great at little things and never complaining, never saying that's not my job. You know, there's, there's a bunch of sort of bullets in how you do that. But again, all that to say 30 years later, I still view myself as that intern in the broom closet. It's really hard for me to get that out of my head. And, and, you know, why would someone, again, I'm doing an interview with, with Marty Smith and I'm thinking, well, um, honestly, for 25 years, I, I'll, I'll share this with you. Um, people would call me you know, to get to Joe. And I, I was so naive. Every time I would think maybe this is the one person that's actually saying, Hey, I've got this thing and you'd be great. You'd be great to come talk to us. And we'd get about five minutes into it and they'd go, so will you ask Joe? And I'd always go, Oh, all right. I guess, I guess, I guess I'm right. There's no way anyone would ever want to talk to me. And so now you're talking to me. And one side of me is like, wow, that's awesome. I got there. But part of me still thinks, why are you talking? Why are you talking to me? So well, well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I admire you so much, man. And you've always, you know, like my pillars are kindness, effort, and passion. Uh, it's not, it's not a difficult equation when people say, "Man, how do I get there?" And there's not an answer. Like when when a young person who wants to be a NASCAR executive comes to Dave Alpern and says, "How do I get there?" You can't answer that question. Because it's not a direct path. It's not A to B. Yep. It's A to Z. And all those B, C, <laughs> D, E, F, G are really, really unique uh, 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 stopping points on that journey. And tough. And really tough. And you got to want it. I tell my kids that every day. Nothing, nothing is going to be handed to you. You have to have the effort. You have to want it worse than the next guy and go get it. Anyway, uh, no, ahead, let me say, you mentioned passion, Marty, and I know you talked about it in your book, which, like I said, was phenomenal. And honestly, I don't know anyone in the business that embodies passion more than you. I mean, again, I, I don't care what you're talking about or when you when that camera turns on. Awesome. And you're you're drawn in because of your passion. So I, I appreciate that. By the way, you also talk about writing notes. I'm an old school guy like you every week. Um Amy, who works with me, she's got a reminder to say, hey, is there anyone from the weekend you need to write a note to? And she reminds it. me, and I write notes. So good good call on that. It man. matters. <laughs> I mean, it just matters so matters. much. That, that two minutes of your time buys yep. you forever yep. in that person's soul. All right, last thing, and I'll let you run uh, so you no, guys I'm enjoying can get prepared this. for all hell that's going to break <laughs> yeah, loose and, in and, Alabama and I, this weekend. <laughs> oh, and I'm, and I'm very vital to setting the car up. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're fine. Uh, we so so back to JD. One one of the ways that I got to know Pern and JD so well was when we were much younger men. That's right. We we 
there was a NASCAR flag football league. <laughs> and the NASCAR flag football league was comprised of like eight racing organizations. And it was really a bunch of former college athletes is because that was that era when pit crews stopped yep. being just Joe Blow who turns a wrench on Wednesday and sets the race car That's up right. and then just shows up at the track. <laughs> and it was like guys who were former defensive backs at Auburn who wanted to yep. continue their athletic careers. And so somebody had the bright idea, let's just play ball against each other. Well, y'all, I get a call from J.D. Gibbs. He goes, hey, he goes, uh, we have this flag football team, and it's me, and it's Pern, and it's Mike Verlander, <laughs> and right. it's, you know, all of these dudes. And he was like, I want you to play for us. Like, come play for us. He's like, I'm going to play quarterback, and you're just going to run fly pattern. <laughs> because even though On now – On the opposite I'm, of Pern, who's also going to be running fly pattern. Yes. Yeah. We, we're going to have a bunch of scrappy 145-pound, like – like speed hey, demons. I'm a buck 50, man. Come on. <laughs> Dude, we waxed the floor with we everybody. <laughs> because Pern and I were actually pretty fast dudes. And JD could throw at a country. He was a college he, quarterback. He, he could, could throw a it. country mile. <laughs> and I'm sitting five feet from the 10 and 0 year trophy, which still sits in my office proudly That's next so, to all the What other, year was uh, that, dude? Like 2003? Oh it, was, it was like, no, it was 2007, believe it or not. Was it our, really? Our, yeah, no, we're, we, were, we were younger, but we were still, I think we were old for the league. I say we. I was I'm a dad a already? Than you. <laughs> that every, my kids came like, out and cheered for me. Cameron is but, my uh, line of demarcation. Like 05 is, is when all of my athleticism started to decline well, because let me, let me say, I, I appreciate you including everyone was a college athlete. You were a college athlete. <laughs> I was a college intramural sports participant, but uh, we did have some wheels. Honestly, those were, so I, fun. I would, I, I would go down to the training room and literally get my ankles taped. I mean, I took it way too seriously. It was, it was awesome. And I missed that. And I can't imagine what I would pull if we did that again, but I'd give anything to try it out you there. You remember me getting in the fight <laughs> with Roush racing. Do you remember the fight? I, 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 I think, I, I think we got in a fight almost every we week. We were so <laughs> uber competitive. Like that's well, cause we beat them in the championship and they were so upset. They had they were so, upset. so many great athletes at Roush racing on their pick. They did. And man, uh, I remember I got to jawing with one of them, and I so wish we went. It's one of those deals where you yeah. in, you are fighting, you are just about throwing throwing haymakers at each other, but then and you don't like each other for like a long time, and then you see each other at the racetrack. I saw him at the racetrack, tire changer on the seventeen, and I go over and I'm like, "What's up, man?" He had gotten moved to the six car, and I'm like, "What's going on, man?" And we laughed so. Like, I have so got to tell you, I got to tell you one. This and this this encapsulates JD and how JD was our. I always said JD's excited and depressed were like one inch apart. He never got excited. <laughs> so so we go in the huddle and we're playing Everham and I think it's a playoff game and I scored a couple of touchdowns on a guy and my second touchdown, the guy is in my face. <clears throat> I mean he is he is you you you're pushing on him and he is. So I go in the huddle and I'm like JD, this guy this guy is unglued. And so he goes, all right, well, we're going to go for two and I'm coming right back to you. And he, and he wanted, you know, he wouldn't say it, but he wanted, he was like, we are going to, 
we're going to cram it. it. So he's like, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to run this little out pattern. And I do it. And I gave it the little Clinton Portis spin where I spin the ball on the ground, which is probably a little, you know, cocky. <laughs> and that guy wanted to murder me. And he, let me say he could have, cause I'm a buck. I was, I was a buck 50 soaking wet, but, but I knew I was faster than him. So he had to catch me. But anyway, I just remember JD, you know, he never would get, but I, I t- telling him that in the huddle and he kind of pauses, looks up at the guy and goes, all right, well, we're going right back to you. You know, <laughs> and so I was like, fun. that's what I love to hear. Those so, were the best uh, times, man. Yeah, and that was, that was... speaking of great times, thank you, man, for, for giving me all this time and sharing your testimony man. with us and, and fellowshipping together and y'all make sure when does it come out? Is it, it so it actually comes out June 8th. You can, uh, you can June check 8th. out, uh, taking the lead You can go on there and read a little bit about it. My, 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 my good friend Marty's endorsement is on there among some others and uh, very grateful for that too, my friend. But, uh, and then officially comes out June 8th, but you can pre-order it right now. And, uh, Oh, by the way, all of my proceeds, 100% of the author proceeds will benefit the JD Gibbs legacy fund. So, which, which funds, uh, some urban ministry here in Charlotte. So, uh, I can shamelessly plug it because it's all going to a good cause on my end. So, well, let me tell you, I didn't know until much later in my journey as an author, that proceeds would go to helping with college educations for young people who can't afford school. But that was not originally my motivation, I will admit. And I shamelessly um, promoted the absolute fire out I of my know, book. As well, <laughs> as well you should. And it was, it, it, it was wonderful. Thanks, dude. Have an amazing day. Hey. Thank you for your time and, and, your, and your insight and your example. Uh, just such a great person, brother. Thank you. Marty, thank you. And hey, tell 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 Cameron he's the man. Tell him I, I will hope he's do doing that. Good. I tell him All that right. every day after I put my foot All in right. his backside. Love you, dude. Be good. <laughs> I'd love to see you, Marty. <laughs> All right, Travis. I know how I feel. I want your perspective on what you just heard from. Like I know Pern as that guy he was just talking about, like that intern guy. That's what I loved the most. So I didn't know anything. I mean about him. I heard, you know, I knew a little bit about JD just, you know, working with you by proxy, but that intern mentality is kind of something that I tried to, you know, when I first came to ESP and I was a part-time employee. And so I try to keep that same mentality, even though, you know, promotions as you progress and working on bigger and better things to try to keep that same, you know, hunger there. And, you know, just the little things that he was saying that even if you aren't a high level executive, there's still things that you can take from this interview it was i was blown away by it no doubt me too and there i mean if you i love that perspective too because what it does is it keeps you humble it keeps you grounded and i admire when folks start in the mailroom as it were and they continue to ascend up the ranks and there's so much value in that path because you respect so much the guy in the mailroom now you know what that person is living. You know the grind and you know the expectation. And when you know that, they respect you because they know you know. Yeah, and then when he makes decisions, when he makes it, he knows how that's going to impact the people at the bottom because he was once there. So he can take that into consideration when making decisions. You know, sometimes you have a president or executive that's never been at the bottom, so they make a decision and they don't understand the ramifications of those decisions. Yep. I love it. And, and I appreciate his perspective and what a, what a journey, what a journey to, to, 
to becoming J.D. Gibbs' best buddy in a seventh grade to running the day-to-day operations for his Hall of Fame dad. And just to go, just to speak about Pern on a personal level for a minute, his insight to me, and, and I'm reluctant, I don't tell him this, but I'm reluctant to reach out to him sometimes about Tourette and about everything that it is, even though Cameron, like my son is amazing to me. And like, again, I got my foot in his rear end all the time. Like I am tough on him. I am, I expect him to give me everything he's got, but I can't imagine like that's where Dave comes in and is such a valuable resource for me. And again, I'm reluctant to reach out to him too much because he's, he's a busy man. I mean, he's running a, he's running a business that is so uber competitive and represents 80 plus million dollars in sponsor in corporate sponsors a year. And so I don't want to burden him with my stuff, but when I, when I want to see the world through my son's eyes a little better, I have the opportunity to do that, even though like, I feel like my son's brand of Tourette is a little different than Dave's was. Still, it just offers me that, like, like the anxiety part of it, like the anxiety that comes with, okay, like, I'll be like, hey, buddy, just go to the eighth grade dance. Like, just go to the eighth grade dance and sit with somebody and start asking them about their life. Well, that's easy for me in my life. He's not me. He doesn't have the same social approach that I do. And I, I can remember being, as a young person, I had tremendous insecurities about social gatherings. I just happened to be fortunate enough to be a remotely decent athlete. I was never a cool kid at all. I was a dork. I was a nerd, man. Uh, but I was good enough at football and basketball and baseball where I got to live on that outside ring the far outside ring of the cool kids table. And I didn't really get messed with too bad because I was good at ball. But I, I tend to forget that insecure, those insecurities as a dad now, because now I've been so blessed with this life that like, I'm going to go get it, man. Like that's my perspective. Now I'm unstoppable force in my own mind now and so it's just a unique resource for me to have Dave if I have forgotten something to the degree where I go okay you're remiss here you're not being empathetic enough to this let's let's go outside of our own mind and ask somebody else another resource what this is like and I don't know if that made any damn sense at all that but made perfect sense. That's kind of where, where it is. But anyway, thanks so much to Dave. What a beautiful soul. And, and like, what a great honor to get to talk to him. I, I find it funny that, 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 in, that kind of baseline disappointment that he was talking about, like, maybe it's my time. Maybe I'm the guy this time. Oh, they just want coach again. I was, I was wondering if right after that you were going to be like, I actually – I'd like to see if Joe can come on the podcast next week. <laughs> yeah. I, I, like I get it, man. Like I understand that way of thinking, but 
really grateful, uh, really grateful for him. And, and I can't wait to see him real soon. Speaking of racing, you had been talking about F1 and drive to survive on Netflix. So I gave it a try. And not only did I give it a try, we're through the three seasons. Yeah. You binged it, didn't you? Binged so it well hard. Done. And the last seat, the last season three was last year. So it was actually like, if you're going to start F1, it was perfect to get kind of a general understanding, but there's a, there, it's a lot of different things from NASCAR. Oh, God. like when you were talking to Pern about the teammate relationship, NASCAR is a, at least it seems like able to keep it under control where F1, it's like your biggest rival is your it teammate. Is. It is. And they make no, that there's no disguising that there's no masking that they openly say it and they openly live it. And I love that. I think it's so cool that they're willing to do that. I think it's fascinating how they operate that way. Because again, going back to my own personal insecurities, if I feel like somebody doesn't like me, dude, it can, it doesn't work well for me. Now, if it's somebody that I don't know, I don't, I don't care. I live that every day. I, 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 you know, that's just social media and all that today. It's just part of it. You can't please everybody. And at some point you have to realize that as a public figure, but, but if it was a, somebody that I'm in meetings with somebody that I'm working through, trying to make my race car faster, become more competitive with, if I know they don't like me, that is a wild dynamic to me psychologically. So after season three, I was like, I'm going to pick a driver. I'm not picking Lewis Hamilton. He's, he's at the top. It's, you know, some watching. And I landed on Lando Norris as my driver, Team McLaren. And to that point of the teammates. Why did you land on Lando? Just this what, young what was it about Lando that you liked? He's just this young driver. Seemed very just kind of laid back, yes. fun. Uh, you know, he's talented, but he hasn't reached the top. So it's kind of like, all right, I, you know, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon of a, you know, an awesome dude, but to the point of the teammates on Sunday, he felt his car was faster than his teammate, Daniel Ricardo, your guy. And he asked, he gets on the mic and they tell Daniel, we're going to, you need you to move aside, let Lando pass you and see if his pace is faster than yours. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it is crazy, and it's, it seems so counterintuitive to what, like, competition is. But if you watch Drive to Survive, it is just so well done. Like, I can't – it's, it's, it's I don't amazing. have enough superlatives for how well done it is. And also, I give Formula One a lot of credit and the drivers a lot of credit and the team principals and, and executives a lot of credit for opening themselves up the way that they did to this project because it's a very vulnerable, a lot of things that they're saying and a lot of the insecurities that they discuss, which were very foreign to us before this documentary. Yeah. We I text, this I text you and I'm like, I can't believe the team principal is openly bashing one of his drivers at a dinner because that driver's not there. Like it's unbelievable, man. It's but and so, so back to the competitiveness, there is that inter there's that inter-team, inter-organization rivalry, while at the same time knowing that finishing in the points is vital and podium finishes are like almost like victories. And that's where 
like Travis's example with Lando Norris and Daniel Ricardo, my, my boy, the reason that that is so important is I appreciated Daniel's response to it, which to me was very rare too and very like, like just so understanding. So let me try to give you guys an idea of what happened, okay? They're racing at Imola, and, and Daniel Ricardo was ahead in the running order, one position ahead of his teammate Lando Norris. They're both drivers for McLaren. Lando had a better pace. He was faster, for lack of a better term, than Daniel was. They come on the mic, they come on a the radio, they say, Daniel, we would like for you to lay over for Lando. We think his pace is faster. Well, that's like that's like asking your dang asking you to let your girlfriend date somebody else. Like it's crazy. And so here's where it I found it to be interesting this time because I I had not heard any driver ever say this before. They gave me the opportunity to prove my pace. They didn't say, Daniel, get out of the way right now. They gave him time to, to, to attempt to reach Norris's speed. And when they all realized, okay, you're not as fast, we would like, like you let him go because we had the opportunity if you let him go and get out of his way to finish on the podium, which is a massive thing for the industry. And right now, or for, for those teams that are battling Mercedes with Lewis Hamilton and, and Botas, which, I mean, it's like they are far and away the most dominant team. I mean, like it's like Lewis, it's not even close. Lewis Rex goes to like, p7 p8 and then just the car it's just unreal yeah it's a fascinating thing and if you guys aren't haven't seen drive to survive uh team marty smith's america travis and marty we can't possibly possibly recommend it high enough it's on netflix it's called drive to survive i have a couple questions what you got i don't know if i can answer them or not but i'll try so towards the end the big thing was are they in DRS range? Drag reduction system. Basically, so obviously in Formula One, aerodynamics are beyond crucial. How your car cuts through the air makes it faster or slower. And these this DRS system, drag reduction system, is an opportunity to make it less, to, to, to produce less drag for a certain period of time than it normally does. Does that make sense? Okay. Because yeah, they kept saying like drag. they were like Leclerc needs to stay within DRS range of I Norris. I think it's one second. Yeah. And because if he got further back, then he loses DRS. And then Lewis, who is behind Leclerc, is going to be in DRS range and then it's going to be able to pass him. And I'm like, y'all want to speak English for a second? So, so there's basically, there's this wing on the back of the car that the driver can manipulate that reduces drag and makes the car go faster in the, for the opportunity to pass somebody that that's like the easiest way I can say what it is. Okay. Is that, 
That, yeah. That, and and that, you Formula One fans out there, Orlando or or Daniel, I know y'all are listening. Uh, you can you can correct me or tr- if if we're wrong, but that's what I believe. Like it's just a, a it's a piece of body work on the back of the car that the driver can adjust to reduce the aerodynamic drag and thereby go faster and pass somebody else. And then what's up with the keeping the tires covered? And they're like, I have no idea. I wondered the same thing. I I don't know that answer. And it's amazing though, that the science that goes into every little thing and that a driver says, I feel something or this, and they're like, hold on. And then they're just computing and, well, in open wheel cars, unlike NASCAR, they can see every single bit of telemetry, every metric, every measurement on that race car. Virtually, they can see it on their monitors on the pit box or the or the paddock or whatever they call it in your respective form of form of racing. In NASCAR, while they've gotten more and more and more digitized, it's still the driver saying, I am really loose off the corner. Like the driver has tells the crew chief on the radio, I'm I'm so I'm wrecking loose, which what wrecking loose means is when when you are coming off the corner, imagine driving on ice, giving your car throttle if you have a rear-wheel drive 1975 Chevy Nova, and you give that thing throttle, the rear wheels want to come out from under the car. And you have to overcorrect, drive into the swerve in order to correct the swerve. And so that's what wrecking loose is. They can see that on a TV monitor in open wheel racing. So it's just really a, a, a unique difference. And like, I love that driver input still matters that much in NASCAR. I think it, that's I mean, really cool. I mean, they pit once, maybe twice in a Formula One, and they have. 20 people on the pit crew yep you know each person just has their one job and so they are all taking the tires off at the same time and nascar you're pitting multiple you know hell you could pit a bunch depending on how the race is going and it's just a few people over the wall it's it's very different the one nice thing is the races are coming on at like eight nine in the morning so that's what sunday, i mean i do sunday every morning pop it on every single sunday i pour my coffee my kids wife usually aren't even up yet and i'm sitting there with the dog and i watch all the pre-race that's another thing f1 does really well i love how they do pre-race it's there's a there's an intensity about it that i don't that that i don't get in nascar that could very well be because i'm too inside nascar like i know nascar so well that Maybe I don't, maybe, maybe NASCAR fans feel that same intensity. I love the intensity that I feel watching the, the passion of the pre-race for, for F1. I love it. And I would love to incorporate some of that into the NASCAR broadcasts. What I would like NASCAR to do is the qualifying for Formula One. It's, it's sometimes just as exciting because how they do it is there's one round and it knocks out the bottom five and you could finish first in that first round. You just advance and your time gets washed away and it, you, you know, then there's another round and it knocks out the bottom five again. So you keep having, so there's, you know, three or four rounds of qualifying to set the grid. 
Yeah, it's also awesome. twenty. It's also twenty cars compared to forty. True. And so there's a you know there's a there's a difference there, but uh, I feel you. And 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 in recent years, NASCAR has dabbled with five on the track at the same time. And so anyway, I, I should have uh, made these. I should have made these suggestions to Pern. That's I screwed up. I, hey Pern, I've got a few things. If you you don't know me, but I'd like to just throw these out here. If you could go ahead and we should voice get Steve these. Phelps. We should get Steve Phelps or Steve O'Donnell from NASCAR on as a podcast guest. It'll be awesome. I love it. Um, well, uh, that was a fun one today. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and uh, we appreciate you guys listening so much. And uh, I hope everybody has the most amazing day, a great week. And let me see what we got coming up. We got uh, NFL draft end of next week. I'll be with Trevor Lawrence during the NFL draft down in Clemson. And then I go straight to the Kentucky Derby where there's some awesome storylines this year, man. The guys that own are part owners of Hot Rod Charlie, uh, our former Brown University football player frat boys, and they are awesome. I've been texting with them uh, for a while, a couple weeks now. And, of course, Bob Baffert, the GOAT, uh, Captain Smooth, he uh, he is the defending Derby winner. Won with Authentic last November, or excuse me, last September, and is has the opportunity to win his seventh record-breaking seventh Kentucky Derby as a as a trainer. Uh, my guy Todd Pletcher, with whom I've gotten pretty close, he has four horses in the Derby, and so they're just awesome storylines all over the Kentucky Derby this year. And I'll dive way deeper into that next week during the podcast and way deeper than that two weeks from now after it's run in the aftermath of it. When you see Trevor, I just, you know, you can say, hi, how's it going? And then just give him a go bucks for me. Can you do that? Yeah, sure. Sure. He'd appreciate that. Uh, Man, that young man is a special, special kid. He really is. And I'm I'm glad to see him leaving college football to, you know, had enough of playing against him and, Time to move on. I don't. Yeah, feel man, like it you. became an annual rite of passage. Ohio State, Clemson. Uh, it, it, it is a weird little. I don't uh, think that's going to change. By the way, Travis. No, but at least it's pro. like you know, get a different person. I mean, I but, could yeah. go. Off, I could go way off down a down a rabbit hole right now if we start talking about Justin Fields. But uh, maybe we'll do that next week because the draft is next week, and maybe we'll get somebody on here. Maybe maybe that's y'all tell us like what. What person should we have as our guest next week that we should discuss the NFL draft with? Doesn't have to be an ESPN person. Don't count on us getting any players. Yeah, do not do not tell me Trevor or Justin. Yeah, Blitz. yeah, yeah. That's that's really hard to do. Um, they're kind of busy right now, but we'd love to hear who y'all think. So, just an awesome few weeks coming up for for amazing events I get to cover and, and we'll talk about all of them here on Marty Smith's America. Thanks to uh, zipper zipper cooter. I got Travis cracking up. Uh, also, there's one other thing that's weird, man. Like Travis and I have realized the master's vortex lasts a few weeks. I have not drank one beer since the master's when I didn't drink it out of a master's cup. I've only every drank, beer I've drank. I've only drank one day, but the, uh, I feel like I brought the pollen back with me to Connecticut. Yeah. You need to get some, you need a Zyrtec sponsorship. I'm t- I do. I need a Zyrtec and then 
speaking of sponsors, since we both like Lando and Daniel, if McLaren wants to sponsor us, we're open. Well, they, they, you know, I'm sure they could handle five grand or whatever it costs to sponsor Marty Smith's America. All right. We love y'all. Have a good week. Peace out.